Father, we acknowledge you as Lord. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you again for your pursuit of us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can reflect on Christ's coming. We can celebrate next week the resurrection of Christ. We can reflect on the fact that you have worked, not only in the past and will work in the future, but you're at work in the present. And I guess I was reminded of that this week in a number of ways, but particularly on Friday as we had a memorial service for John Wildoner to see you're working in some people's lives, a receptivity and some response in light of our ministry to them through a meal. May we grasp as we interact with your word this morning that you're working within us. Here at Roaring Brook, you're working within the body of Christ in our valley and in the world. And it's our desire for you to be glorified. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Thinking well, thinking biblically, is vital in our lives each day. Questions challenge us to think. God uses questions repeatedly. Beginning in Genesis 3, he said to Adam, where are you? Christ asked dozens of questions to religious leaders and those he healed. Let me present a few questions this morning for you to ponder and think about as we interact with God's word. From what kind of character being do the actions of sinners spring? Can we interest unbelievers in the gospel of Christ by luring them with things they enjoy and appreciate? Will unbelievers respond to Christ if we respond to their questions concerning the Bible and answer all their objections. Last week we considered sin, and want to look at it again this week, laying the groundwork for what we will discuss next week concerning Christ and his resurrection and what we have in Christ. The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, take on a much deeper meaning in our daily lives as we grow in grasping the depth of sin outside of Christ. Ann Landers years ago wrote in a newspaper advice column, and and I quote, One of the most painful, self-mutilating time and energy-consuming exercises in human experiences is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or something dishonest, hurtful, I'm sorry, it can ruin your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was a result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. Be assured, 
The agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need it any, any more of it in this world. And a quote, and with that, she went on to give some other advice. The ancient Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, and I quote, that every guilty person is, is his own hangman. No matter how often a man tells himself he is good, he inevitably sees that he cannot help thinking, saying, and doing wrong things and feeling guilty about it. Guilt drives people to alcohol, drugs, despair, insanity, and more and more frequently to suicide. And playing psychological games about blaming his environment or other people or society in general, man still cannot escape the feeling of his own guilt. In fact, societies with sophisticated psychological services seem even more guilt-ridden. People want to get rid of their guilty feelings, but they do not know how. And the more they probe for solutions, the more guilty they feel. End of quote. Why do we humans feel guilty? Because we are guilty. But the guilt is only the symptom of the problem. The problem is sin. All the counseling in the world cannot relieve a person of guilt. At its best, it can only make people feel better, superficially and temporarily, by placing blame on someone else or something else. That only intensifies the guilt because it adds dishonesty to the sin that caused the guilt in the first place. We are guilty due to sin. And unless our sin is dealt with biblically, our guilt cannot be. This is why God pursues humans from Adam and Eve to the present and will continue to pursue them. His ultimate pursuit was expressed in Christ, who became sin and willingly obeyed his Father in going to the cross. Last week we discussed sin, and we tied in with the fact that a target is involved, the target being to know God, to experience God, and to obey him with delight. But this target is missed repeatedly. A target implies there's something to be hit, to know God, to fellowship with him, to be content in obedience to him. So JT shoots this target. Why? Because he wants to go out in the woods and get a deer or maybe a turkey. But there's a target. As I mentioned, the target is a relationship and fellowship with God. That is the creator God. Content and obedience to him. Another way of defining sin is to fall short. Fall short of relationship and a fellowship with God. Fall short of contentment and his obedience. In Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul has forcefully declared that the pagan Gentile and the religious Jew fall short of God's standard. They are sinful. They stand condemned. 
But yet human nature resists the idea of sin and being separated from God. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, and I quote, It is only stubborn self-pride that keeps man from the confession to God that would bring release. But the way he releases it, but that way he refuses to take. Man stands before God today like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar and who with an air of outraged innocence pleads the justice of his position in total ignorance of the fact that a good spoonful of jam has fallen on his shirt under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself. Paul was aware of the human disposition to deny sin. Therefore, from creation, from history, from reason, from logic, from conscience, Paul has already presented the testimony against humans in Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 8. Now in verses 9 through 18, and if you want to turn there, you can, he presents the ultimate testimony. After several questions in chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul presents before the court, if you please, the testimony of God's own word from the Old Testament concerning the entire human race. In verse 9, he presents, again, if you please, an arraignment. And then we find in verses 10 through 17, or 3, 10 through 17, that should be 3, not 2, the indictment, the character, the being, the conversation or the words, the conduct or the action, the all fall short of a relationship with God. In verse 18, he presents the motive. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Verses 19 and 20, he presents the verdict. There's no way to have a relationship through the law. Let's read together Romans 3, 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul begins this section with two questions in verse 9. The first is, what shall we conclude then? 
the idea is, what is the point of further testimony? Paul has already condemned the moral pagan, the immoral pagan, and then both the moral and immoral Jew. Anticipating what some of his hearers, his readers would think, his second question, are we any better? Do we have a better basic character than those shown to be condemned? Are we cut from a different mold, from a different batch of dough? Now, I do have a question. He says, what should we say then? Are we better than, are we any better? Who's Paul speaking about when he says, are we any better? Now, there's two directions you can go with that. The first one that some writers would say, he's speaking of fellow Jews. Are we Jews any better than the Gentiles? But he has already dressed the Jews in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and said that the Jews do have greater advantage because they were entrusted with the Old Testament scriptures. So that brings greater accountability. But there's a second option. Paul is referring to himself and to the fellow saints in Rome, both Jew and Gentile. Are we... That is, am I Paul? Are we Roman believers, both Jews and Greeks, Roman believers, any better than the rest of the world, than the Gentiles? And I'm inclined to lean that direction, that Paul is writing to them, and he's posing a question, are we? So if you were the Roman church, and the letter is read, are we? The Roman church, are we, that includes Paul, any better than the Gentile. And the idea better than is just that uh, are we saints now any better? Are we less sinful than them? What's Paul's answer? Not at all. If we go with what I just mentioned, Paul is saying the Roman, to the Roman believers, you and I are no better. We've already proven, we've already demonstrated, or I've already demonstrated, Paul says, that the Jews and the Gentiles are alike, all under sin. Already charged in the Greek, is often used as a legal term to designate a person previously indicted for a given offense. Paul's already proven that. He says they're under sin. Frequently, the word under means beneath. Not just beneath, but totally, completely under the power, authority, and control of something else. He said we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin, totally under its power, authority, and control. For example, North Korea being under the power and control of their ruler, Kim. Every human, both Jew and Gentile, are complete servants to and in bondage to sin. 
That is, no relationship with God, no fellowship with God, no contentment and obedience to him. Now in verses 10 through 18, he's presenting a 13-count charge against all humans. Unless you think you're going to be here till 1 o'clock to consider all 13 of those charges, we're not going to consider, consider all 13, but we'll begin to look at several. The indictment comes from the Old Testament. As it is written. Also, no one, and not even one, is mentioned six times in verses 10 through 12. These charges are presented in three areas. First of all, in 10 through 12, the character, the being, of the human race. In verses 13 through 15, I'm sorry, 13 and 14, their conversation, their words. And then in 16 through 18, the conduct or the actions. Notice what he says in verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. We won't turn there, but we could go back to Psalm chapter 14, the passage it comes from. The term righteous is used in its most basic sense of being right before God, as God created man to be, in fellowship, in relationship with him, and content in obedience. Yes, humans may at times do morally right things. Paul is not speaking of the general pattern of behavior, but of the inner character. No one has a relationship and fellowship with God and and is content in obedience to the Creator God. There's none righteous. None. He goes to second charge. There is no one who understands. Again, you could turn to Psalm 14 or you could also turn to Psalm 53. We find here there's just spiritual ignorance. Human beings have no innate ability to fully comprehend God's truth or his standard of righteousness or how to have a relationship or fellowship with the Creator God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 point out that the humanity's spiritual ignorance is not due to unfortunate circumstances or lack of opportunity. It's due to their inner character, their being that is darkened. Men are not sinful and hardened against God because they're ignorant of Him, But to the contrary, they're ignorant of him because of their sinful and hardened hearts. Human beings have no potential to understand. Revelation is needed. The work of the Holy Spirit is needed. Romans 1, 18 through 23, bring that out. Now imagine with me when I was in the college, 
took a science class, and we had to do a project. And one of the projects that the professor offered was to go caving. I thought, oh, I think that sounds like fun. And he said, we're going to go to northern Georgia, and we're going to go to a cave where very few people go. We just happened to come across it one time. We were out in the woods. So we went to this cave, came to this little hole. And by the way, we're going after dark. We had to have our flashlights to even get to the hole where the cave. And he said, who wants to go first? And you went down about 15 feet. There's no ladder there or anything else. You went down the rocks and we get all down there. And he said, okay, let's go caving. And we got to one point in the cave and he said, now I want everyone to turn your lights off. Everyone. Pitch black. You could take your hand and put it in front of your face. You, you know, unless you knew your hand was moving, you wouldn't know there was anything there. Pitch black. Now suppose he would have said to me, Dan, stay where you are. I want your flashlight. We're going to leave you. We will come back in five hours. I have no idea when five hours pass. So I say, I'm going to find my way out of here. There's no hope. There's no one who understands. Can't grasp it, can't see where they're going. That's why God gave revelation. That's why God pursued Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? The relationship, the fellowship with God was broken. They're in darkness. They didn't understand. God pursued them. God pursued Abraham. God pursued Isaac. God pursued Jacob. God pursued through the prophets Israel. God pursues through Christ. He gave revelation. To illustrate this, in 1971, a story was in the Toronto Star of a duck in a Toronto park. The duck, who came to be called Ringo, made her home at the park lake. One day she actually accidentally poked her bill through the ring of a pull tab from a pop can or soda can and was not able to get herself out of it. When her plight was noticed by some park visitors, she became somewhat of a celebrity, park personnel, and animal experts tried to numerous ways to catch Ringo so she could be helped. They even called in a champion duck caller. People tried luring her with food, but without success. Unfortunately, the frightened Ringo mistook all the efforts to her as being threats. The rescuers lost sight of her and never did catch her. It is not known is she eventually dislodged the pull tab before she died. Kind of a description of humans. We don't have the ability to understand. God has to work. He goes on with his indictment against the human race. No one who seeks God. There's no one. Again, we could turn to Psalms, but we won't. Consider the many religions of the world. One would think that many people are diligently seeking God. 
But Scripture makes it clear in Romans 3 and many other passages that the religious systems are in reality attempts to escape the true God and make false gods. There is no one who seeks God. God begins the pursuit. All have turned away. Again, coming from Psalm 14. Turned away has the basic leaning of the wrong way, the wrong direction. Militarily, it speaks of a soldier. Rather rather than going into battle with the army, he turns around and flees the other way. All have turned away. He says they have together become worthless. Again, we could turn to Psalm 14, but we won't. The idea of worthless can be used to describe milk that has turned sour and is rancid. Therefore becoming unfit to drink, to use to make butter or cheese or anything else edible. They have together become worthless. What else does he say? There is no one who does good. Not even one. Does good refers to what is upright, especially to that which is morally upright. The natural man does not have the ability to do that which is upright when measured by God's perfect standard, springing from a relationship and fellowship with God. Pretty strong indictment. He goes into the words and then into the actions. Perhaps that's why Paul says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law in verse 21 has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul at the end of his life or towards the end of his life talked about the fact that he was the greatest of sinners. It seems like Paul came to Christ, and as he matured in his walk with Christ, he came to understand more fully the depth of his sin, the depth of his character apart from God pursuing him. And that should move us to think and to ponder the thinking, the attitudes of sinners springs from a character a being that is centered in self rather than a relationship and fellowship with the character God or the, the creator God. The words of sinners spring from a character or being that is centered in self rather than a relationship, fellowship with the creator God. We're not saying it's all morally wrong, but it's springing from a separation. The actions of sinners springing, spring from a character of being that is centered in self rather than a relationship, fellowship with the Creator God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the gospel of Christ. And the gospel of Christ begins with the creator God. (laughs) 
So here I am, sitting in the cave. No light. No way to find my way out. What do I need? Someone to come and rescue me. That's the gospel. That's the spirit of God. That's revealing himself, God revealing himself in creation. So we have the human race in the center, no relationship, no fellowship with the creator God. There's no contentment and simple obedience to him that results in the upper right, a character thinking, words and actions that fall short. The upper left, character, thinking, actions that miss the mark. The lower left, character, thinking, words, actions that are self-centered. The lower right, character, thinking, words, and actions, I'm in control. That doesn't mean there's nothing good in our world being done that we consider good. But it's springing from a vacuum of no relationship. Fellowship with the Creator God and contentment and obedience to Him. The reality is sinners do not have the potential, the ability to choose to move toward a relationship with God, to obey Him for His glory, or to do anything to obtain righteousness from God. Therefore, Paul says, as we'll consider next week, a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ is needed. On the lighter side, Ruth Ann would admit that she is directionally challenged. When we were away vacation, we went into a Walmart store and I said to Ruthann about she wanted to go to the bathroom. All she says, I'll go to the back of the store after a while and go to the bathroom. We walked around for a while and she said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. She goes this way. I just looked at her and she wondered what I, why I was looking at her like that. She went to the front of the store. She thought she was going to the back, you know, just directionally challenged, and I don't say that critically of her. We humans are more than directionally challenged. We're in darkness. Separated from God. So sins and words and actions begin with sin in the inner being or character. So there's no category of sinners in terms of character and being. All miss the mark of a relationship, of fellowship with the Creator God and being content in obedience to Him. We're all together. All sins are equal in the sense that they fall short of God and His revealed standard. They spring from a character, a being that is not in relationship and fellowship with God. Now, that doesn't mean nothing good is ever done. 
It doesn't spring from a relationship and fellowship with God. All sins impact relationships. Some sins impact relationships more deeply than others. Sinners do not lack information. They choose not to give thanks to God and glory to him. More information will not bring a sinner to God. It's like me sitting down there in the cave, no light, no way to get out. And finally someone drills a little hole and they drop a mic down there and then they seal it up just so that I can't get any light. And they say, uh, Dan, we just want you to know that we have light up here. We want you to know what we're doing up here above the cave on planet Earth. We want you to know that God is sovereign. We want you to know that we have dozens of flashlights up here. Doesn't help me a bit. That's where we as human beings are. I can have all the information I want, but the Spirit of God must convict. God pursues humans who are separated from Him ultimately for His glory. You see, that's a dark, dark picture. But until we understand the darkness, the Spirit of God cannot convict concerning the light. And next week we'll find what Jesus offers to those in darkness. From what kind of character or being do the actions of sinners spring? One separated from a relationship with God. Can we interest sinners in the gospel of Christ by luring them with things they enjoy and appreciate? Anything they would enjoy appreciate is not directly related to relationship and fellowship with God. Doesn't mean everything is totally wrong that they enjoy and appreciate, but the Spirit of God is the one that must convict. So we can answer, if we answer all the questions and objections of unbelievers, will they come to faith in Christ? No, because the Spirit of God has to work. Should we answer questions? Yes. Should we answer objections? Yes. But the Spirit of God still has to work. I've talked with a couple of people over the years, and they have objections. You answer them. They have questions. You answer them. Do you want to come to faith in Christ? No. We answered all your questions and objections. No. The Spirit has to work. That's why John 16 Talks about the Spirit of God convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Is there any hope for those in our world of influence? Yes. God works in people. God pursues people. And he wants to use us to share with them. Has God spoken to you? My first question is, are you in Christ? 
Have you repented of sin? Have you come to faith in Christ through the work of conviction? If not, why not today? Come as you are, which we'll sing in a few minutes. If you have come to faith in Christ, I want you to reflect back on your coming to Christ that you came as you were. Not because of your goodness, but void of all of that. The Spirit of God working and drawing and God gives life. So I could have cried out, Mr. Cloud, I'm down here in this cave. I have no hope. He says through the mic, I know you have no hope. You're dependent on me. We have no hope apart from the Spirit of God working, the Spirit of God drawing as God pursued Adam, pursued Noah, pursued Abraham, and pursued you and me. We have a great forgiveness, and that greatness of that forgiveness increases as we understand the depth of our sin. Let's sing together. Travis.